Heavenly Father, we pray that you refresh us this evening, that you feed us through your word. We pray that you give us a clear vision of your guidance, of your provision, of your protection, and of your welcome. Amen. Amen. So if you've ever been to Indonesia, you might have a sense of how chaotic the roads can be over there. Um, The roads are packed with scooters. Around eight and a half years ago, we went to Indonesia. My wife and I, Erin, went to Indonesia, to Bali for our honeymoon. And when I realised that I could, uh, I think semi-legally, hire a scooter, it took me all of about 15 minutes to find a place to to hide the scooter from, to sign the papers, and be sitting on the scooter. Now, Erin was much more anxious than I was because her mum had read of an accident in Bali before we went and had warned her maybe not to go on a scooter, but I was too excited to be stopped. And so over the next couple of days, um, I took many wrong turns down all these uh, innumerable streets of streets of Bali. There were many near misses. I couldn't get out of roundabouts. When there are heaps of scooters around you um, on the outside, it's really hard to get through. So I was going round once or twice. Um, and there, were, there was once when I turned down um, what seemed to be like a highway um, with trucks and buses, and, um, and it was much too uh, much for a, a guy on a sort of rickety scooter. I say this because... Um, I want to emphasize that it's really important that we have someone competent to lead us in our Christian journey. It's crucial that we have someone who can get us to our destination. Life's complex. There are many decisions that come across our paths. Life's difficult. There are many times in our life that we just don't know what to do. We don't know the way forward. And so we need a leader. We need a leader who won't accidentally lead us down a um, highway We need a leader who won't know how to get around the place. We need a leader who knows where we need to go. So last week, this week, and next week, we're in the book of Psalms, and we're looking at life through the eyes of the psalmist. And this evening, we've got Psalm 23 open before us, which is one of the most famous psalms there is. And this psalm is all about a journey, our journey, with God through to our destination. So tonight's going to be a bit like a walkabout tour. So usually I have three points, but tonight I don't have three points. We're sort of going to meander through the psalm together. So have the psalm open before you. It's on page 544. It'll be really good for you to have it open before you so you can follow along. The first four verses of the psalm work from a metaphor, quite an obvious metaphor. The Lord is my shepherd. Now the metaphors in the book of Psalms used of God can be often more hard-edged than the metaphor of shepherd. They're often um, God as rock, God as shield, God as king. But here in this Psalm, we've got God as shepherd. And that's an intimate and a relational metaphor. Not only does the metaphor suggest intimacy, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. This Psalm is an overflow of David's personal experience with God. And I think we all hunger for an authentic experience with God. Praise the Lord, Lord, indeed. I think we all hunger for an authentic experience with God. And I think that's one reason why this psalm has been so um, impactful and meaningful through the centuries. We know our relationship with God isn't meant to be just a head thing, but it's so easy for our relationship with God to become mechanical, to become dry. Um, And we forget that... It's not about believing the right things. 
as much as it is about entering those realities, living them and even experiencing those realities. And we get a sense of David doing that in this psalm and that's why it's so powerful. And so this evening, I'd love for you to let the intimacy of this psalm, David and his God, our God, to refresh your vision, to refresh your relationship with God so that you see God in the same way David sees his God as the God who cares for him, the God who guides him, the God who leads him to his destination. So David starts, the Lord is my shepherd. But what does it mean for God to be a shepherd? Well, first, a good shepherd makes sure the sheep have good food to eat. So look with me, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Such a nice little vision. So heartwarming. It's to say that the shepherd searches out for the green pastures as opposed to the arid, sparsely vegetated land that is much of what Palestine is. This is a picture of Palestine. A lot of it, a lot of Palestine, ancient and modern, is like this. But the good shepherd manages to find land, green grass, and that takes a lot of effort. He finds land like this. Why does the shepherd try so hard to find this lush green grass? It's because he doesn't want the sheep just to eat. He wants them to eat well. The average shepherd, the hired hand of John 10, he mightn't care so much about the sheep, but this shepherd does. He has our best interests at heart. But not only does the shepherd want the sheep to eat well, he wants them to drink well too. The the shepherd leads me beside still quiet waters, quiet waters. So food was difficult to come by in ancient Palestine, but water more so. Settled existence in Palestine required quite some ingenuity. ingenuity. There's not much water in Palestine, and so often rivers had to be diverted, springs had to be helped in their flow, cisterns and wells were dug to retain the waters from the wetter months. It was hard to come across water in Palestine, and even harder to find water safe for the sheep to drink. Because a lot of the water in Palestine is a result of flash flooding. And so they're turbulent waters. Much like this. Flash floods suddenly filling, uh, flash uh, floods would result in the sudden filling of what are called wadis, dry creek beds. And these flash flood streams would wipe out anything in the path. And so just imagine for a moment you're a sheep and you're looking for water to drink. You don't want to be sticking your head in a turbulent river because before you know it, you'll be downstream 800 metres with your legs in the air and somewhat dead. You don't want to drink from a turbulent river if you're a sheep. You want quiet water, and that's hard to find in this land. But the Good Shepherd leads us to it. So we're getting a sense that the Psalms painting a picture that the shepherd doesn't provide any kind of sustenance for his sheep. He provides the best sustenance. It continues, By providing for the sheep in this way, verse 3, he restores my soul. A better translation of this would be, he restores my life. The, The soul in the scriptures isn't just a part of us that floats away after we die. The soul is what animates us. It's The soul in the scriptures is what is us essentially. So what the psalmist is saying is that the shepherd's taking good care of his sheep. He's providing sustenance 
when they need it. Another translation might be, he refreshes me. I hope you're getting a sense of how the psalmist doesn't just believe things about God. He doesn't just believe propositions about God. He doesn't just tick the box. Yes, I believe that God is good. Yes, I even believe that he's generous. He's living it out. He sees the reality of these beliefs in his life. And so when something good comes across his path, he thanks God as the giver of that good thing. When a wholesome experience is had, he thanks God because it's coming from the hand of God. He sees grace in the everyday. He sees God's grace in the everyday. Now, not only does God provide for his sheep, verse 3 He guides me in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. The point here is that the flock aren't on an open-ended wander in the Palestinian (coughs) desert. The sheep aren't left to their own devices to work out the paths on which they should go. Because, and that's because it's a good thing because uh, sheep aren't the smartest creatures in God's creation. I came across a, a news article that was entitled Turkish Sheep Die in Mass Jump when I was researching for this sermon. And it said these things. Turkish shepherds watched in horror as hundreds of sheep followed each other over a cliff. First, one sheep went over the cliff's edge, only to be followed by the whole flock, according to the reports. More than 400 sheep died in the 15-meter fall, their bodies cushioning the fall of 1,100 others who followed. You can sort of just imagine sheep bouncing off each other. Sheep follow sheep, but thankfully the paths aren't set out by the sheep themselves. The path is set, the right path is set by the shepherd. God, as the good shepherd, isn't like the Turkish uh, shepherds who were having breakfast as their sheep were roaming on land near cliffs. Our shepherd is attentive. He makes sure our feet remain on the right kind of paths. And that's what it means um, when the psalmist says paths of righteousness. Um, We tend to think of the word righteousness as being quite a religious-y word. But here it just means the right paths. There are good places for sheep to go. There are bad places for sheep to go. The Lord guides us on the right paths. So unlike me in Bali, I'm trying to lead um, us through the, um, the streets in which we were staying unsuccessfully. God knows his way through life. God is a competent leader. God knows where he's going and he knows the way for us to get to our destination. And the fact that God keeps us on right paths is crucial for us to know, especially when we come across verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The psalmist isn't naive when it comes to human experience. The psalmist knows very well there will be darkness and danger on our journey. Psalm 23 knows about evil, it knows about difficulty, it knows about fear, it knows about anxiety. The picture here is of a dark ravine. It's any dangerous place for the sheep, a place where there might be predators lurking in the shadows. It's a terrible place. But the good shepherd, we're told, doesn't only look after the sheep in the pleasant places... He looks after the sheep in the unpleasant places. And notice this. These unpleasant places form part of where the right path goes. These experiences aren't accidents. 
and they're not unexpected for us. These dark valleys are necessary for us to get through to our destination. Now, that's not only the message of this psalm. That's the message of um, a lot of the lament psalms. That's the message of the book of Job. That's the message of uh, Jesus. If anyone tells you that the Christian life is going to be a walk in the park, it's just not true. And the psalmist realises that. And he expresses it really powerfully. But there's comfort to be had. The good shepherd walks with us through these places. And that's why he says, You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The good shepherd doesn't send us down this dark valley, sort of pointing ahead, just go through there, and whilst you go through there, he'll get a drink and meet us on the other side. The good shepherd walks through us in this valley. And he has a rod. That's a weak translation. When we think of rod, we think of a fishing rod, which is quite thin and light. But shepherds had a thick, sturdy piece of wood with a cudgel, a metal piece on the end, to protect the sheep from the predators, from the lions or the wolves that might attack. And not only a rod, the shepherd would have a staff, which was a thinner, longer piece of wood, which would keep the sheep in line as they went through the valley. You are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. And as it says at the end of verse 3, the good shepherd is committed to us. He has bound himself by name to us. He guides me on right paths for his name's sake. The shepherd's reputation as a shepherd is bound up with his success in getting us to our destination. He's binding his reputation to us. And finally, um, do you notice in verse 4, something changes. The psalmist stops referring to the shepherd as he and moves to referring to him as you. It moves from third person to second person. The intimacy of the psalm jumps up a level. And many of us know that. Many of us know that in the more difficult times when we're stripped of our own capacities, when we reach the end of our tether, we cry out to God. And depending on him more, our relationship with God deepens. It's no longer me and him. It's me and you. At around uh, midnight on, in 2004, Frank James woke to a phone call. His younger brother was trapped in a snow cave in the US. Emergency services couldn't access the cave because of a blizzard. Uh, Frank's brother, Kelly, never made it out of that cave. Frank writes these words. Uh, Though I am a preacher and a professor of historical theology, I have found it agonisingly difficult to to come to terms with my brother's death. The truth of the matter is that losing a loved one hurts down to the deepest part of my soul. He goes on. I'm still trying to make sense of Kelly's death. I don't know why God did not rescue Kelly from the cold grip of the mountain. What I do know is that my relationship with God has entered another dimension. One more mystifying and more honest. There is disappointment, sadness and confusion. But oddly, there's no retreat from God. Instead, I find myself drawn to God. He goes on. In in Psalm 13, David calls out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And a few verses later, the same distress David declares, But I trust in your unfailing love. Finally, it seems paradoxical that 
David would trust the God who hides himself when David needs him most. But as I have meditated on David's Psalms, I sense he had a different kind of relationship with God. One not so many Christians understand. It is more mysterious than I had been led to believe. It is a relationship where simplistic spiritual formulas and religious cliches have no place. Frank was drawn to God even in the valley of the darkness, the shadow of death. His relationship with God entered another dimension. But back to the psalm. In the psalm, in verse 5 and 6, we finally have reached our destination. And thankfully, David changes metaphors. We all know that the, the metaphor, that the destination, so destination for a sheep is lamb chops. <laughs> and that's not our destination. And so thankfully, the metaphor changes from God being a shepherd to God being a generous host. In verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So notice how warm the welcome is. You can almost smell the food that's been prepared. The table's spread. It's ready to be eaten. Your head's anointed with oil. And oil was usually just left for the kings and the priests, the sort of the high-ranking officials of the state. But here, you're the guest, and you've been anointed with oil. And even though you might be despised outside in the presence of enemies, the house of God is a safe place. You're honoured, you're welcomed, and you enjoy extravagant hospitality. Now we're familiar with cartoons that portray heaven as being in the clouds and with pearly gates. And the pearly gates are always closed and there's St. Peter at the gates with a clipboard, and it go, the whole thing um, is assumed that you will reach the pearly gates that are closed and be quizzed by St. Peter. Will you pass a quiz is the question to get in. But that isn't the picture of Psalm 23, not at all. Psalm 23 goes more like this. You come to the gate, and it's open, because in John 10, Jesus is the gate. The gate's open. There's no St. Peter at the gate. There's no clipboard, but there's a path. And the path leads straight to a restaurant. And as you walk to the restaurant, the, the doors to the restaurant open and someone meets you there. Good evening, sir. Good evening, madam. Do allow me to take your coat. What would you like as a starter? And while you're waiting, here's a big, large goblet of wine to enjoy. That's the picture that we're getting in Psalm 23. It's not an exam. Our destination is a banquet. Verse 6. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now when it says follow, surely goodness and love will follow me, that same word is used in the Old Testament uh, to talk of animals pursuing their prey. So a better word might be pursue, um, surely, in goodness and, surely goodness and love will pursue me, or even more effectively, surely goodness and love will hunt me down. Surely goodness and love will breathe down my neck. That's probably more accurate to what David is getting at. So I hope you've enjoyed the picture David's given us. We've gotten a sense or a taste of his faith. His faith is not just mere propositions to be believed. His faith is deep and it's authentic. He sees God as his guide, his protector in the valley, as the generous host who welcomes him home. 
And if the house of the Lord is anything like the picture we get in Psalm 23, a place of welcome, protection, um, where you're honoured, a place of food, then who wouldn't want to live in the house of the Lord forever? Now in John 10, Jesus isn't only the gate, but he's also the good shepherd of which Psalm 23 speaks. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he, when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Jesus shows us how far God is willing to go as our shepherd. God doesn't abandon his sheep in the valley. Instead, God goes before us through the valley. Darkness enfolded Jesus. On the cross, he laid down his life for us as our shepherd. But we all know that his death for us wasn't the end. 